Hi, and welcome to your Owen podcast, quick and handy tips for vets on the go. I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, a coordinator for the Ontario Animal Health Network, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Kotwa, who's a master's candidate at the University of Guelph, and Dr. Andrew Peregrine, clinical parasitologist at OVC. Thanks for joining us, guys. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, so we're here today to talk about Echinococcus multilocularis, a new and emerging uh, pathogen in Ontario, and um, we're going to talk over some details and um, about different types of infections and some of the life cycle and what veterinarians need to know. So, uh, until recently, no one was talking about Echinococcus multilocularis in Ontario, but that's no longer the case. So, Andrew, can you tell us what's happened? Uh, well, what happened was back in 2012, um, a dog in southern Ontario with significant liver disease was actually found um, to be infected with the intermediate stage um, of Echinococcus multilocularis, also known as the fox tapeworm. And that was a big surprise for everyone here because it had never been diagnosed in the province before. Um, as far as Canada was concerned within provinces, it had only been detected before uh, in the southern parts of Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Um, so it was a big surprise, particularly because that dog um, hadn't travelled outside southern Ontario. Right. Okay, so can, John, do you want to tell us a little bit about the life cycle of Echinococcus multilocularis and what alveolar echinococcosis is, um, what animals it affects, and just some more details about that? Absolutely. Echinococcus multilocularis is typically maintained in a wildlife cycle involving two hosts. Wild canids act as the definitive host, and this is uh, where the adult stage of the parasite is harbored. Once mature, the adult will release eggs into the feces of the wild canids, and these eggs are immediately infective. Small mammals or rodents can act as the intermediate host, and they become infected by consuming the infective eggs. Once the larval stage is inside the rodent, it embeds in the liver and undergoes exogenous budding and behaves similar to a tumor, and this will eventually kill the host. The definitive host, or the wild canid, can become infected with the adult stage by consuming a rodent with that larval stage in their liver. There are also what are known as accidental or barren hosts, and these are considered dead-end hosts because they don't contribute to the parasite's uh, life cycle progression. The accidental hosts can be humans or dogs, and they may develop these larval staged uh, cysts similar to what's found in rodents uh, when con they consume uh, eggs of Echinococcus multocularis. The disease is termed alveolar echinococcosis. Okay, great. And so wild cannons would be foxes and coyotes, that kind of thing? Yes. Okay, and any kind of small rodent that lives in the wild? Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Um, all right, so um, what do we know about Echinococcus multilocularis in Canada, the U.S., and Ontario? So in North America, it's thought to be endemic in two regions. The first being the um, North Tundra Zone, which is comprised of the majority of the Canadian Arctic, as well as Alaska. Mm -hmm. And the second region is the North Central region, and that's composed of the southern portions of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, as well as 13 contiguous U.S. states. In Ontario, it wasn't thought to be here until, or until we found evidence of it in 2012. Okay, great. But the, I mean, the thing to point out, Melanie, is that although it had been occurring in that wide geographic area in wildlife, as John mentioned, both in many U.S. states and three Canadian provinces, 
it had only ever been detected in wildlife um, and in domestic animals. It had only been detected uh, in a few cats in one U.S. state and one Canadian province. So mm. it was strange that despite its wide geographic distribution, um, infections, particularly in dogs, um, had never been described. Yeah, interesting. Now, does it affect um, does it affect wild cats as well, like the, out at west or or in rabbits and things like that? Does it affect different categories, or do we know? Well, so whilst John mentioned that prim- the um, adult tapeworms primarily occur in the small intestine of wild canids, so that's foxes and coyotes, um, the parasites certainly will establish in the intestine of wild and domestic um, felids. Hmm. Um, uh, we have more information about domestic cats than we do about wild um, cats, and that is by comparison to dogs. Um, they tend to be, when they do get infected, and again that's by eating wild rodents, they tend to shed um, for a much shorter duration, much, much shorter duration and lower levels than dogs do. So the zoonotic risk associated certainly with domestic cats appears to be significantly less right. um, than domestic dogs. Because okay. the zoonotic risk um, is associated with shedding of eggs in feces, um, and that's primarily in the feces of dogs and to a lesser extent cats. Okay, great. Um, and so we kind of delved into this. So is a kinococcus multilocular? Is, is it is it zoonotic? Yes, I think you've covered that. But. It is. I think it's worth pointing out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at zoonotic um, pathogens, this would be ranked very near the top as far as um, how severe the consequences can be in people. Um, as John mentioned, people, if they ingest eggs, just like um, the rodents he discussed, develop alveolar hydatid cysts. Um, why it's a particularly severe infection in people uh, is that just as in rodents, it behaves like a tumor, it grows slowly and can start spreading around the body. Um, The clinical incubation period uh, in people is 5 to 15 years, and not surprisingly for a parasitic infection in the liver, by the time people become sick, there's usually significant um, involvement of the liver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty hard to reverse at that point. So the case fatality rate in people is extremely high when left untreated, which would be very unlikely in Ontario. Um, However, there still would be um, a guarded prognosis um, after um, at least chemotherapy, um, which is carried out, and depending on whether or not the lesions are resectable, surgery is also carried out. Okay. Um, so when we're talking about intestinal infections of dogs and cats, how big are the, and well, I guess in general, how big are the adult tapeworms, um, and do dogs ever pass visible segments? So dogs ever pass visible segments? I, I think the answer is rarely, um, and the answer to that is, the reason for that is that the echinococcus tapeworms uh, as adults are tiny by comparison to the more common tapeworms uh, we find in the intestine of dogs. So that's, for instance, Tinea pisiformis and Dipylidium caninum. Um, the entire echinococcus tapeworm is no more than a few millimeters in length. Mm-hmm. So if you're seeing segments in feces that are greater than a millimeter in length, they essentially can't be echinococcus. Okay, gotcha. Um, so, Jonathan, how can uh, how can dogs become infected with the intestinal in- infection part? We talked a little bit in the life cycle, but if you could clarify a little bit how our domestic dogs are getting would be getting infected. So, just like the wild canids, so foxes and coyotes, they would be uh, infected with the parasite after consuming a rodent mm-hmm. that has the alveolar hydatid cysts or that larval liver growth in it. Okay. So I could see that that would be a really good question if you're a if you're a small animal veterinarian in Ontario to start asking if your if your pets are 
out off leash or if they're or if they're consuming any kind of animals. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Melanie. Uh, we, we now know that this parasite is endemic um, in southern Ontario, um, and certainly in the places across the province where this parasite's been diagnosed, um, I think there's a responsibility for veterinarians to start doing a risk assessment on an annual basis, and that's driven by the question, does the dog particularly hunt or eat rodents, um, and does it go off leash, so could it have access to rodents? Because if the answer is yes then there is a chance that the dog could have established an intestinal infection and be shedding eggs. And it's those eggs and feces mm -hmm. um, that are the public health concern. Right, yeah. Um, so I guess to jump into, if you are suspicious of that, how can dogs be tested? So how can dogs be tested for shedding of eggs? And that's the problem. Um, you can The standard fecal flotation methods that are used to examine dog feces are extremely insensitive for finding the eggs. Um, the other thing to appreciate for vets is that the eggs of Echinococcus are absolutely identical to the eggs produced by teenia tapeworms. Oh, handy. So it is, so it is handy, uh, <laughs> and, and it's a concern because so these days, if for instance a fecal result comes back as positive for tenia type eggs, you need to remember in southern Ontario now, those could be a kinococcus eggs, right. um, and certainly if that's the case, I think there's a legal um, justification for using praziquantel to treat the infection, um, because only praziquantel is approved for treating a kinococcus. Okay. But the the additional concern is that, in fact, just like shedding of eggs by other tapeworms, there's often low numbers of eggs shed in feces, and they're shed intermittently. Huh. Um, so, for instance, one fecal coming back negative doesn't rule out infection. Now, in other parts of the world, there are now some, there is, in certain parts of the world, some very sensitive PCR methods for examining feces okay. for the presence of Echinococcus martillocularis. And it's hoped within the next year or so um, that those will be established, um, in, in on, at least in Ontario, because there's an increasing need for diagnostic, fecal diagnostic methods that are more sensitive than the standard flotation methods. Right, to have a better idea, yeah. Um, okay, so and what, what effect does it have on dogs, this, inte this intestinal infection? So it appears to have no effect. The dog uh, is subclinical right. and appears healthy. So it appears to be no detriment to the dog's health. Right. So and that so that would be exactly the same as for wild canids. Okay, so they don't have any issues. As far as we're aware, they, they tolerate significant intestinal burdens with adult tapeworms, and there's no impact health at all. So, you know, so if you've got a dog or potentially a cat with an intestinal infection, you wouldn't know. Right. Uh, and in fact, by comparison to the tenia and dipalidium tapeworms, where you quite often will see segments, mm -hmm. I think the bigger concern with the kinococcus, it's unlikely you'll even observe shedding of segments right. because they're so small. And they're not going to be in poor body condition or anything? It doesn't no. seem to be. So okay. your dog will look perfectly healthy and happy. Okay. Um, so what are the what is the risk of pe uh, of infection for people and and how will they they how will they how could they get it? So the risk of infection for people and uh, and the infection in people is associated with ingestion of eggs, mm -hmm. and it's only by ingesting eggs that you become infected. Um, as John's already mentioned, these eggs are immediately infective when they're passed in feces, um, and whilst. The primary infections, like the majority of infections, occur in the intestine of wild canids. Um, those essentially aren't uh, a d direct risk of infection to people. 
the biggest risk, and this has come out of multiple studies in Central Europe, where this parasite is far more significant and very much an emerging issue. But, but the primary issue is once infections in wild canids go through into rodents and dogs consume um, infected rodents, it's the subsequent shedding of eggs in the feces of dogs um, that's the human health concern, and, and not surprising because they live in our houses. Uh, right. And we spend a lot of time in close proximity to them. Right, sometimes in your bed and things like that. <laughs> right, and, uh, but I think it also uh, is an important uh, reminder of routine hand hygiene practices mm -hmm. and veterinary practice uh, and recognizing that basically any dog you could be handling in southern Ontario today certainly if it go, that goes outdoors, could potentially have an intestinal infection. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a good reminder that for multiple reasons, um, practicing ha um, routine, regular hand hygiene is extremely important. After every, yeah, after every patient. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Yeah, certainly after anal glands and things, which right. you probably would do anyways, but <laughs> okay. Um, so in what levels of, what level of risk or risk factors in a dog would warrant monthly treatment with prosequantil? Like, would you... So as I mentioned earlier on, just as occurs, for instance, now in Switzerland, every year at the annual wellness check, um, a risk assessment is done for every dog for this parasite. And so questions are asked, does this dog go outside? Does it go off leash? Um, does it hunt? And particularly, is it known to eat rodents? Right. Um, and certainly, um, if it hunts or is it known to eat rodents, um, that is considered a high-risk dog. Uh, and the recommendation for such dogs is to treat monthly with praziquantel during the at-risk period. Right. It's essentially most of the year. Right, because it could be any time. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. And are there um, what actions and when can treatment be stopped? You said so. You said so. Basically, year-round. Do you think? Well, that essentially, the and the, so the reason for recommending monthly treatment with praziquantel, um, and the reason for that is that when dogs consume infected rodents. It typically takes about four or five weeks um, for the parasites to mature and for eggs shedding to start. And so by treating monthly, you essentially eliminate the risk of adult parasites establishing. Okay. However, unfortunately, um, that has to be continued the entire time dogs are outdoors. Okay. Um, and in some respects, that's, that's a problem, um, actually, because of the cost of praziquantel. It's right. not particularly cheap. Um, and so when you've got a medium or large-sized dog, that's a significant expense. Um, okay, and then I guess if, uh, so if, they're, um, if they are infected, if you do, let's say you did get a positive on, I guess if you, I don't know, if you, if you were suspicious that there was a positive of some, for some reason. So if you've got direct evidence that you've got a dog shedding eggs of a kinococcus macularis, and that will come once we have readily available PCR Tests, methods. Yeah. Um, at the moment, fecal exams just with regular float just shows tenia type eggs. Right. But once we, you're right, once we have a PCR method that's specific for echinococcus macularis, sooner or later, you, in southern Ontario, you're going to get a dog that you know has been shedding. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a number of things that you would need to do at that point. Obviously, number one, straight away, treat the dog. Right, with praziquantel. Uh, so typically, the recommendation would be to treat the dog with praziquantel twice, 24 hours apart. Okay. Uh, and whilst one treatment... Um, should eliminate the entire infection. Certainly the experience in Switzerland is to give a second dose 24 hours later just in case the, um, the, the initial dose wasn't given completely because praziquantel is extremely bitter. Oh, and so some yeah. dogs don't ingest the entire tablets. The other thing, well, there's two other things to appreciate. Even when you treat dogs with praziquantel, 
um, the praziquantel, although it kills the adult tapeworms, it doesn't kill the eggs. And so for the next few days, the dogs sh will be shedding eggs that will still be infected. And so practicing strict hand hygiene practices over the next few days following praziquantel treatment is very important. And then the last thing to appreciate is the public health concern. Mm -hmm. Since you've now proven the dogs shedding eggs of Echinococcus multilocularis, um, I think there's a responsibility for, you, for us as vets just to let the local medical officer of health know um, that this dog has been shown to be shedding eggs, and then they need to do a risk assessment to determine the extent to which people in that household um, should be followed up for potential exposure. Right. Um, and that's a significant issue. As I mentioned earlier on, the clinical incubation period is 5 to 15 years. Um, however, seroconversion, so the development of antibody in people that's got exposed, um, typically occurs within a few months. And so for people that have been potentially exposed, the public health community typically will take blood samples on a number of occasions for the following year um, to try and determine whether or not that's happened. Okay. And there are tests, there are tests in Canada for that? There are, are there tests for people in Canada? At the moment, to the best of my knowledge, um, no. Typically, the blood samples from people are still sent to Switzerland, okay. uh, where the world effectively the world reference lab for this particular parasite occurs. Um, one, one of the things to appreciate, as in dogs, um, we think that many people that seroconvert, so they get infected, never go on to develop disease. So just because you have a seropositive individual um, doesn't mean they're, they're going to develop disease. Mm -hmm. um, it's only a, a proportion of exposed people ever become sick. Okay, great. Um, that's good news. <laughs> All right. And so, if you had, uh, what precautions did you employ at the clinic if that disease, if disease is is suspected? So, if disease, well, I mean, what precautions should you be doing in practice on a day-to-day -day basis? As I say, yeah, talking to all your staff about regular hand hygiene after handling every dog, um, uh, washing hands regularly. Um, if you've had a dog that you're suspicious has been shedding eggs into your practice environment, um, just as talking um, about family members of such dogs, you should inform the medical office of health and they'll come in and okay. do a risk assessment in your practice, trying to work out which people um, in the practice are most likely to have been exposed. Okay. And is there, uh, how long are the eggs infective for, or how long are they how long do they persist in the environment? How, lo how long do eggs persist in the yeah. environment? John, do you want to comment on that? So it's up to a year in a cool, moist environment. They're highly resilient, uh, but they're susceptible to high temperatures and desiccation. Okay. Um, and common... So, it, common you know, so it could be many months in a practice environment. Okay. Um, not just a few hours. Right. So it's very variable and it depends on the environmental conditions. And are they, is it susceptible to common disinfectant agents? So are they susceptible to most disinfectant agents? Probably not. Oh. Um, they're pretty resilient structures. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in fact, when we're working with fecal samples from wild canids, um, the only essential, the only sort of proven way um, that reliably inactivates them is actually to freeze eggs at minus 80 for five days. Um, there are no disinfectants known to kill eggs um, rapidly and reliably. Okay. All right, that's good information. Um, okay, so I think that wraps up what we're going to speak about today, unless there's anything else you guys would like to add for, um, you know, dealing with our intestinal infection and the life cycle. And then we're going to next time talk about um, the alveolar echinococcosis, um, as well as a bit more about the human uh, conditions. So thanks very much for joining us, guys. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having us.
do it right there.